next on ReachMD. Voices from American Medicine, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from medical professionals on the front lines of healthcare. The Affordable Health Care Act was positioned as a replacement for Obamacare, otherwise known as the Affordable Care Act, but had to be pulled under threat of failure to be passed in Congress. This dramatic turn has kept the ACA on the books, at least for now. But what is the future for American health care policy, and where do healthcare professionals and the general public alike go from here? You're listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. Joining me today is James Capretta, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, studying healthcare, entitlement, and U.S. budgetary policy, as well as global trends in aging, health, and retirement programs. Mr. Capretta has directed several major studies, including one on reforming U.S. healthcare according to market principles and consumer choice. Mr. Capretta, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you again. It's great to have you with us. <laughs> I have to take a deep breath here because a lot has happened since the last time you and I had a chance to touch base on the American Health Care Act and just American health policy in general. So why don't I set the table here with one of those obvious starter questions. Why did the Affordable Health Care Act fail? Well, I guess maybe I could give the, the obvious answer. It didn't have enough support, but why didn't it have enough support? I think the big issue here is that the Republican Party had been working on and trying to advance a unified approach to rolling back and replacing the Affordable Care Act. But prior to the election and prior to the inauguration of, of President Trump, that work had been in theory and not necessarily uh, grounded necessarily in reality. And so when they got to the point of having to write real legislation that would really roll it back and really have to replace it with other provisions, they made a lot of progress. They put a lot of effort into it and put some structure around what they wanted to do. But there's going to be some more work that needs to be done to get their entire caucus behind a single plan. I'd also note that their majority in the House and in the Senate is relatively narrow. They have, I think, 22 votes to spare in the House. They can lose 22 Republicans and still pass something. In the Senate, they can only lose two votes. So they're trying to write something big and complicated and controversial just with Republican votes, and that requires almost unanimity amongst them. And so you got a few people who object for this reason or that reason, going to be very hard to do. So it's a tight window they're trying to thread through here to get this done, and they haven't quite gotten there yet. Did it come as a surprise to you when they had to pull the bill uh, based on the responses, or did you sort of foresee that internal rivalry as far as being able to get all the hurdles cleared for both a repeal perspective and a replacement perspective? I'll admit that I thought they would pass the bill just out of sheer willingness to try to keep the process moving, despite the fact that I understood and knew that there was lots of misgivings about what they were doing. Having said that, however, I'd say also that it's always occurred to me and I think many other people that this was going to be quite difficult to pull off, that everything had to kind of go right for them to get this done in the time frame they were planning on, trying to get a final bill to the president's desk by the April recess. That was going to be a, a major, major push to get that done. And any number of things could derail it. And of course, now it has been derailed to some degree. So I thought they'd pass it in the House. That didn't necessarily mean that I thought it was a smooth sailing all the way to becoming law. Yeah, let's talk about that smooth or maybe more accurately rough sailing. Do you think that the bill as it stood, the way it was positioned and championed, even after the attempts to 
change elements of it to appeal to, let's say, the Freedom Caucus and also try to keep the moderate side. Did that still, from your vantage point, represent an improvement or a setback from Obamacare as it stands now? Well, I've written publicly, and I'll say it here also, that I I think the basic structure of the American Health Care Act is sound. I think it's the right basic approach. I do think there are some shortcomings in the proposal that really hold it back and make it much less desirable than it could be if those problems were fixed. The major problems are that it doesn't really solve the problem of the instability in the individual insurance market. It highlights that as an issue, but then the proposed solution would probably make the situation marginally worse in 2018 and 2019 relative to current law instead of better, just because it gets rid of the individual mandate and replaces with something weaker rather than stronger. And so they've got a problem there that they need to address. Also on Medicaid and on the issue of subsidization of people with relatively moderate incomes into health insurance, I think the bill doesn't do enough to make sure insurance is affordable for that population. As a consequence, the Congressional Budget Office shows that there'd be a very large increase of people without insurance. And I think that among many other things, but that's probably the number one reason why the bill faltered and didn't pass in the House. There's just a lot of members who are worried about that, trying to explain that, and also the consequences of it. And so they need to go back and adjust the bill and make it better and more appealing politically. If they did that, I think their prospects would improve. Right. It became that buzzword, that concept of upwards of 24 million people potentially losing their coverage. And that became a debated point back and forth between sides. But what I noticed was that there was a strong pull on each side. One side was saying, listen, the risk of losing coverage, the removing the individual mandate, that instability in the insurance market that you talked about, that's the big issue. We can't move forward. And then there was the other side that was saying, well, the projected risk of the current ACA imploding, that's the bigger risk here. So let's swing back to your work and research specifically, which has focused a lot on the market, or remnant market, as you put it, and consumer choice considerations for healthcare reform. Do these factors still guide the alternatives you've proposed to the Affordable Care Act? Well, I probably am somewhere in between, actually. I mean, I think there's going to be trouble ahead in 2018, that there's enough evidence of instability in the marketplaces that one could assume, and I think fairly readily predict that absent some adjustments, there's going to be difficulty trying to make sure the insurance system is stable enough and and robust enough to make sure everybody can get affordable coverage in 2018. Now, having said that, I, I basically agree with the Congressional Budget Office. They looked at this as part of their assessment of the American Health Care Act, and they concluded that both current law, that is the Affordable Care Act, and the proposed alternative would basically be sufficient to maintain a stable marketplace in most of the country. Okay, That doesn't mean in every state, but in most of the country, they think the subsidies that are provided under both approaches, current law as well as the alternative, would be sufficient to entice enough consumers into the market so that you wouldn't have a death spiral. Now, that's a fairly low bar. It's not They're saying, in effect, hey, it's not going to be catastrophic. It's not going to be a total meltdown. That doesn't mean there wouldn't be some places with only one insurer. That doesn't mean that the premiums might have, you know, go up fairly quickly in 2018 and 19 and 20. But their their expectation is that the subsidies are big enough that it'll drive enough consumer demand so that there will always be 
a pool that isn't in a death spiral. So let me ask you then, do you believe that the ACA in its, its current form, as it trudges on for now, can it still work with adjustments or attempted improvements, as they say, using the scalpel rather than the, than the hammer? Or do you think that at the end of the day, a repeal is still necessary? Well, I guess I wouldn't put it in quite those stark terms either way. I mean, I think some of the language about these, these things is kind of misleading, you know, repeal versus roll back versus adjust versus propose something different. I think there's features of the Affordable Care Act that I think are misguided and need to change. On the other hand, you could look at the American Health Care Act and the Affordable Care Act, and you might come away saying, hey, there's some similarities there. And why is that? Well, the similarities are really centered around the fact that you're trying to deal with basically the same structure and the same problem. You have a big employer-based health insurance system. You've got Medicare and Medicaid. And then you've got a remnant market, the non-group market for individuals buying insurance on their own outside the employer setting. And most of the Affordable Care Act and most of the American Health Care Act is trying to find a way to make that marketplace work for everybody in a stable way. There's a reason the Affordable Care Act had some unpopularity associated with it is because it made a lot of people in that market pay a lot more to subsidize other people in that market. And some of those people paying those subsidies thought they were getting not a very good deal. And so... If you change that and move the money around in a different way, of course, you create different winners and losers. You know, it's not easy to get this exactly right and get a political consensus that is stable over time. But I, I guess I would say that the you know elements of the Affordable Care Act need to change. And I'd favor that. I'm not in favor of an approach that will lead to resuming 45 or 50 million people going without health insurance. I think most people in the country do need to have health insurance. We need to make sure that that's as close to zero as we can get it. I think that can be done with adjustments to the proposed AHCA, but they're pretty big adjustments. Well, for those who are just tuning in, this is Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm speaking with James Capretta. He's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and we're talking about the road ahead for American health care policy. So, Mr. Capretta, let's swing back to your work and research, because last time we talked, it was clear you had done a lot of work focusing on the market, the remnant market, as you put it, and the consumer choice considerations for healthcare reform. Do these factors still help guide the alternatives that you have proposed and continue to propose for the Affordable Care Act? Yes. The basic building blocks for a better system are a market system with real discipline in it, whereby the consumers get to make some choices. They have some financial assistance from the federal government in the form of tax credits to buy some coverage. But on the margins, they have an incentive to buy coverage that is less expensive rather than more expensive, so that everybody participating in that market puts downward pressure on prices and costs. Now, lots more needs to be done to make healthcare more efficient and streamlined and cost-effective. And those things happen through both public programs as well as private initiative. But a portion of the reform needs to be moving as much subsidization as we can out of sort of open-ended programs and into more defined, limited amounts that the consumer then controls and makes decisions with. And I think the AHCA moves in that direction in a fairly decisive way, and I support that. Having said that, 
I think they just need to strike some kind of deal around Medicaid, and they need to do more for people on the lower end of the wage scale to make sure they can afford coverage. If they make those two adjustments, I think their bill will will do better on coverage than it's currently doing. And beyond affording coverage in and of itself, for those that can afford a coverage, one of the key frustrations is the rising premiums, the co-pays, deductibles, all of which make individuals, individual consumers, feel like insurance isn't doing a heck of a lot for them. As an umbrella, it feels like they don't have much under them because they have to do most of the payment besides catastrophic situations. So how does that get addressed? Does either current Obamacare or Affordable Care Act or the Affordable Health Care Act in a present or future form help address that? There's so much that needs to change for that to be a better experience for the consumer that it's almost hard to know where to begin. I mean, right now we have a situation where most people get their plans through their employers, and if they they do, they don't have control over what the package looks like, and they end up really just taking what is given to them. And then in the individual insurance market, as we know through the ACA, there's lots of high deductible plans, but they're fairly opaque. And if people have to buy services before their deductible is expired, you know, there's not much price transparency and it's difficult to navigate the whole system on your own. So I think a lot of things need to change. Here's a model that I think would be much better and more conducive to competition and consumer choice. That is, let's assume everybody has basically high deductible insurance, both in the employer setting and in the individual market. Fine. Everybody's getting at least protection against a major medical expense. That's a starting point. But beyond that, people need to be able to buy with their own resources, maybe out of a health savings account, into some kind of intermediary plan where they get access to the routine kinds of services that are not catastrophic in nature, access to physician care, testing, drugs, diagnostics, consultations, and it can be done in a creative and competitive way with different groups offering different ways of providing those kinds of services. I think one of the big frustrations is that people would like to be able to buy that in a prepackaged, organized way without having to pay gigantic premiums to insurance companies. One of the proposals I have is to make that allowable as an expense under the health savings account program, allow people to take the resources out of those accounts and pay for prepackaged care in the way I just described without it counting as an insurance premium that needs to be regulated by the states and go through an insurance company. I think that can be done, and I think it would add a lot of competition and price transparency to the process. So instead of having to itemize and figure out each individual service someone needs to buy, they can pay $100 a month to a physician group, and that physician group will organize their access to care and their it would be preventative and primary care, but also beyond that, some consultations with specialists, some testing, some labs, all the stuff that is not catastrophic in nature. And it seems slightly akin to that concierge model of trying to, that a number of primary care groups are trying to adopt, not so extreme to the point of concierge, but trying to adopt something like that, the equivalent of a health savings account for their their patients. Do you see that model that you're proposing as a way to incentivize primary care and preventative care? Because right now, there seems like there's very, very little incentive for either. Yeah, I do think, I think it would help. I think most consumers would be willing and able and, and, and interested in using some of their own resources, other HSAs, to 
pay for that kind of care if it was conveniently presented to them and they could, you know, do it without having to spend, you know, hours and hours and hours researching all of this on their own. I think a big impediment at the moment is someone gets an HSA and, you know, it's got a few thousand dollars in it and uh, they need some, you know, care. The system isn't really facilitating and making it easy for them to use the resources to get into a system where it's more organized and transparent for them rather than trying to figure it out all on their own. Let me look to the future again then. Let's say that the pendulum swings back around and that um, the ACA ultimately does get repealed. Let's put that projection out there. Uh, Might not be realistic based on the current political climate, but it might be. What do you think comes next? I mean, uh, I guess to put it another way, what should come next? I think if there's a big change in direction in health policy, it's going to be something like the AHCA with changes, you know, so that wouldn't be what passes, but they may take that as a base and then change it and adjust it to try to get its appeal up and broaden its support in Congress. And so it's, as your question indicates, it's entirely possible by the end of the year that problems in the ACA markets plus more agreement amongst Republicans, plus perhaps even Democratic support based on the turmoil that might be ensuing in certain parts of the country, all of that might add up to a political coalition that does pass legislation that moves in a new direction. And I think what it'll be is retention of the employer-based system. I don't think there's going to be any big change there. I do think there's likelihood of a move toward Medicaid reform and state flexibility around Medicaid. So that was in the AHCA and almost certainly would be in another plan that Republicans try to push. There may be some compromise between states that expanded Medicaid and those that did not. I think that may be one key to unlocking the political support needed to get this done, is to find some way to find an agreement that allows all the states to get on board. There might be changes in the way the tax credits that are available through the ACA are provided, so they move more towards something like the AHCA fixed age-adjusted credits that maybe get adjusted upward just at the low end of the wage scale and not all the way up to 400% of the poverty line. Anyway, those are a few things that might happen, I think, to change direction from the ACA. Now, of course, the big issue is the individual mandate. What happens with that? Republicans are determined to repeal it, and I think most Democratic members of Congress really would like to retain it. So can they find a compromise on the individual mandate? That also might be a key to unlocking some kind of an agreement. Yeah, and I'll, I'll make that my last question, too, because it honestly looks like a mess on Capitol Hill surrounding <laughs> healthcare. I don't want to date our interview too far in saying that, but I don't think that's going to resolve incredibly quickly. And there's a lot of dissent, not so much cooperation. That's totally evident. But of course, the media is going to jump on the dissent, less so on the cooperation. What do you think is going to be needed from healthcare leaders going forward to pave a path where some sort of model, such as the hybrid structure that you're talking about, could actually emerge? Well, look, if if they want to get bipartisan votes, that's going to be a real tall challenge. The, the atmosphere in Washington is very difficult in terms of partisan cooperation. I mean, there's just very little of that these days. And so something pretty big would have to change to create an environment where people did sit down and start talking. I think that might start with the president himself. He'd have to start changing the tone and try to invite Democrats into the process and not blame them so much for everything that's going on and try to say, look, I want to work with you now, you know, and and have to do that on a pretty sustained basis across a number of areas. So there would have to be a pretty big change in direction to try to make that happen. I'm not sure they can pull it off, frankly. Then, yeah, you could see some 
potential for just sort of a middle ground between the ACA and the AHCA where some of the things I just talked about are compromised and you come to some kind of an agreement. It's not out of the question, but quite hard to see at the moment given, given all of the water that's flowed under this particular bridge. And on that shared sentiment, I want to thank my guest, James Capretta from the American Enterprise Institute for joining me to look both back and forward at the health reform landscape. Mr. Capretta, it's great to have you on the program today. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to have to have you on next week for the inevitable sea change that's going to occur. Right. <laughs> There's always another one. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. To access this episode and others in the Voices from American Medicine series, visit ReachMD.com and become part of the knowledge. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to Voices from American Medicine, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from medical professionals on the front lines of healthcare. To access this program and others in the series, please visit us at reachmd.com forward slash voices.